everyone. Many thanks for joining me for this episode of the Heart Podcast with Dr. Stephen Pettit, an advanced heart failure consultant from Papworth Hospital in Cambridge. We discuss many aspects of heart failure, including heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, new drugs that are on the horizon for this disease, and also how we should treat cardiogenic shock in 2020. The Heart Podcast will return in early 2020, so I hope you have an excellent and enjoyable holiday season, and we'll speak to you next year. I hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Pettit, thanks very much for joining me today. Can we start off by discussing your personal journey into the world of heart failure as a cardiologist? How did you get into heart failure? What made you decide to go down that path? Um, I think like a lot of like a lot of trainees, I was influenced by people around me. Um, in fact, I often, I often say to our trainees now that, um, that what attracts you to a specialty or a subspecialty is often not what you're actually doing, but the people who are involved in that area at a time when you, you were learning about it. So I... I trained as an SHO in Glasgow, um, and the, the the people that really, I suppose, turned me on to heart failure uh, were people like uh, Mark Petrie, uh, people like Roy Gardner, um, and you know further up the ladder, people like John McMurray, um, who were you know really changing the world as far as heart failure was concerned. Um, so when I was a when I was a junior doctor, these were really inspirational people from my point of view. Um, and, um, and and I guess to a certain extent I you know I followed in their in their footsteps. Um, it's a fantastic subspecialty to be in because there's an enormous amount that, that we can do um, to improve people's symptoms and their prognosis. Um, and there's been an enormous developments in the sort of science of heart failure over the last ten or fifteen years. So it's been a really, really interesting time to you know to be involved in in the area. And it's a broad church, really, isn't it? You've got, as you say, new devices. You've got drugs, new things coming through constantly, new ways of thinking about the, even the disease itself. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I, I interact on a daily basis with cardiac surgeons, with electrophysiologists, with imaging experts, um, with with sort of professions allied to medicine, physiologists, nursing staff. Um, it's a you know it's a genuinely multidisciplinary field of cardiovascular medicine. And is research available within heart failure? I mean it's uh, it has a very good reputation as uh, as a specialty that does fantastic clinical trials, very thorough trials. Everything is evidence based. And did you do research yourself as you were coming up? Uh, yes, yeah, so I actually actually Bizarrely, and in some ways um, serendipitously, I, I, I did research um, about 15 or 20 years ago into uh, transplant immunology and transplant and tumor immunology. So, um, so my, my, my research was a, was a long, long time ago. Um, but basic, um, basic science research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, basic yeah. science research. Um, but, um, but in my clinical training, I've tried to keep involved with research, you know, yeah. wherever possible. Um, and, you know, now we're like well, I am lucky enough to work at Papworth, you know, as part of you know the UK's biggest uh, heart transplant program and a big uh, mechanical circulatory support centre. So there's enormous opportunities for observational research here of getting involved in in, in sort of national programmes of research relating to advanced heart failure. Fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about the disease itself and particularly 
HEFPEF or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. This is a, a entity that I suppose is, as a non-specialist heart failure doctor, is relatively new, say within the last five to 10 years, it seems to have really come to prominence. But increasingly, I see that there are now new definitions on the horizon for HEFPEF, maybe even subdivisions within what we might have called HEFPEF in the past are, mm-hmm. are coming online. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about that? How do you define it yourself? Um, and why it's important that we have new definitions? Is it Does it impact on how you treat people or the outcomes of, yeah, so, of, of what happens? Um, so I think HEFPEF is a, a topic that causes a lot of confusion um, among cardiologists as much mm. as uh, uh, among sort of general, you know, general practitioners and, and, and general physicians. Um, and it's something that, that I continue to struggle with on a, on, on a regular basis. Um, I always have to be a little bit careful working in a, you know, a tertiary or a quaternary center because what I perceive as HEFPEF is, is probably very, very different from what uh, a cardiologist, you know, working in a district general hospital or, or, or what a heart failure nurse would perceive as HEFPEF. So I guess the, you know, the prevalent HEFPEF out there in the real world are, you know, elderly comorbid uh, patients with um, symptoms that are really challenging to improve, um, a prognosis that is limited um, and sort of recurrent heart failure hospitalization. So I think that's probably what what represents HEFPEF out there in the real world. Mm. Um, We actually transplant patients with HEFPEF on a relatively regular basis. Really? But those are people who tend to actually have um, you know, a more sort of genetic basis to their disease. People with you know with restrictive cardiomyopathies, with with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, without without LV outflow tract obstruction, um, or you know occasionally people with infiltrative cardiomyopathies. So so anatomically and phenotypically, these patients have HEFPEF, um, but these are very very different patients to the sort of you know the real world prevalent problem with you know with HEFPEF. Yeah, um, I find it difficult to diagnose now um i mean e- even even as a person who spends a fair amount of time in the catheter laboratory undertaking right heart catheterization trying to accurately define hefpef is a challenge um and um and when i'm talking with my sort of pulmonary vascular disease unit colleagues we you know interact about whether we should be doing um you know exercise uh, stress at right heart catheterization or whether we should be volume loading patients at the time of right heart catheterization to see how the you know the heart and the vascular system respond so so i i do not think this is well sorted out in Mm. terms of diagnosis um there have been i guess a couple of steps forward over the last few years um, and um and you mentioned new diagnostic or new, new definitions yeah the one that i think is is actually uh, potentially helpful and pragmatic is the is the H2F PEF uh, score that came from the Mayo Clinic a couple of years ago, um, and this is a, a fairly simple scoring system based on real world characteristics such as you know age, pulmonary hypertension, background of hypertension um, that actually allows you to to to. I think come a little closer to making a definite diagnosis of of, of HEFPEF. 
Um, and it's, presumably it involves some echo measures as well. Yeah, tracks. although although the it it does, although the echo measures thankfully are relatively straightforward ones. So okay. so there are two echo measures in the H two F score. Um, one is um, is just the presence of echo, an echo estimate of. PA systolic pressure above 35 millimeters of mercury. Okay. So that's fairly simple. Most yeah. people recognize echo pulmonary hypertension. And the second thing is an E2E prime ratio of greater than eight, which again is something that people are, are, are relatively familiar with yeah. now. Yeah. Um, one of my uh, bugbears about the sort of echo HEFPEF world is that it tends to become fantastically complicated. You get these enormously difficult algorithms with composite echo measurements that no one outside the echo world you know, has any familiarity with from, mm. from day to day. Um, and, and you end up with these scoring systems that, 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 that people just can't use because they just don't understand what, you know, what they're actually being asked to integrate. Um, and Are you I, saying the Mayo, Mayo version is a reasonable Yeah, it's pretty compromise. sensible, it's pretty pragmatic. I mean, yeah. I, I must admit the, um, the ESC have uh, last year published a, a separate document um, to do with a sort of diagnostic algorithm for HEFPEF um, that really goes the other way. Um, it is phenomenally complicated, right. um, especially when you get to their sort of what they term the, the advanced workup and the complex imaging. Um, it would be very, very time-consuming and require a lot of complex invasive tests to really take everybody through that 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 ESC diagnostic process. And you know, in the real world, we've got what nine hundred twenty thousand people with heart failure in the UK, and most people think that HEFPEF constitutes, you know, somewhere between a third, maybe a half of prevalent heart failure. So so my, my concern about the ESC approach is that I don't think the UK can put half a million people through complex stress tests. I don't think the UK can put half a million people through right heart catheterization to try and pick apart whether they've got HEFPEF or not. Mm. Um, it's just, mm. we just don't have the resource. Um, and, I, and, and I think that that approach to the problem will fall down because it, it's just not it's just not deliverable. It's just not practical. Not, it's not pragmatic. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And in terms of the medications that are used, I mean, there was a trial, a recent trial of the ESC, and there's been a meta-analysis published in Heart in the last few weeks, which showed that really only beta blockers, perhaps patients on beta blockers, did slightly better than patients on other. FBF medications, but again, there don't seem to be any really definitive uh, trials of medications that work in this area. Is it? Would you agree with that? Or is, no, I, I mean, I, is it all about treating the underlying cause, perhaps diabetes, hypertension? Yes, ischemia? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, HEFPEF has been the graveyard of most uh, trials of medical therapy in heart failure over the last uh, maybe ten or or twenty years. Um, I mean, di- diuretics are still a very, very important class of medications, and, and, and one that ones that we use. Um, my my take on most of the HEFPEF trials is that they've been negative. You know, ACE inhibitors, yeah. uh, ARBs, beta blockers, almost completely. I mean, the Senius trial of nabivolol had a mixed population of HEFREF and HEFPEF, and that was a that was a positive trial, but it wasn't it wasn't, wasn't it, it wasn't just a HEFPEF population. Yeah. Um, 
there's a lot of sort of mechanistic reasons to think that mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists might might have something to offer in HEFPEF. Um, and there was maybe a signal um, in, um, in, in some of the MRA trials, um, but again, they, they didn't really meet their, their, their primary endpoint. Yeah. Everyone, of course, was very hopeful that CQ Provalsartan yeah. was going to be um, you know, a, a, a drug that really had something to offer in this population. Paragon didn't. It didn't come far from meeting its, no, it's prim- pr- primary endpoint. Yeah. Um, it it didn't, came very, very close to meeting its primary endpoint, but but it didn't meet its primary right. endpoint. Right. Um, so now I guess everyone's hanging out for you know the next uh, big class of medications that are going to be trialed in HEFPEF, which are the SGLT two inhibitors. And shall we talk about other therapies for heart failure as a whole? So you mentioned SGLT two inhibitors. Can we talk a little bit? more about those for people that are not familiar. I mean, this is a drug that's traditionally used by diabetologists rather than cardiologists. Many of the audience won't be familiar with using the drug or prescribing it, monitoring the effects of it. Can you give us a, an introduction to that class of medication? By all means, uh, I mean, I, I, I would include myself in, in, in people who are sort of unfamiliar with using SGLT2 inhibitors. This is something that that I think cardiologists are going to have to learn how to do yeah. um, in, the, in the next few years. And it's actually a really interesting time because the worlds of sort of cardiology and diabetes and renal medicine, I think, are going to are going to, to really collide over the next couple of years. So, I mean, SGLT2 inhibitors um, are, are compounds that inhibit the sodium glucose transport protein 2. Um, so they act in the kidney. Uh, and they act to inhibit reabsorption of glucose um, in the kidney, and so um, will cause uh, glycosuria. Um, and they were, as you say, originally designed for or to be a helpful drug for use in diabetes. But in many of the early diabetes trials, it was noticed that patients were just not developing heart failure or being hospitalized with heart failure at the same rate as the people who were randomized to placebo. So there, there was a sort of early signal that, that SGLT2 inhibitors uh, may have something to add to, to patients who either have heart failure or at risk of developing mm. heart failure. Um, and, and very quickly, um, companies went on to, uh, to put together trials to actually look at the, the gr- a group of patients with heart failure to see if, if SGLT2 inhibitors were, were beneficial even if the patients did not have diabetes, yeah, um, and the you know the headline trial um, that was uh, presented this year at ESC Dapper HF um, was, was positive, um, was overwhelmingly positive actually. And um, that was a, that was a trial in uh, all comers with heart failure without diabetes. Is that yeah, right? so this was this was these were patients who had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Okay, um, and they did not have diabetes, and they were randomised to um, to well in Dapper HF it was Dapper uh, Glyphosin ten milligrams once a day, or placebo, um, and the primary endpoint was a composite of worsening heart failure, which they defined as a heart failure hospital admission or the need for intravenous diuretics to treat heart failure, um, or cardiovascular death. Um, and um, and the, as I say, the trial was positive. It met yeah. its primary endpoint. The difference in in absolute terms between dapagliflozin and uh, placebo was was around about five percent, and 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 the relative risk reduction was 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 just over twenty five percent. So quite a quite a quite a big difference um, in outcomes. And and at 
very little cost in terms of adverse events. There were there were no excess of adverse events in the in the in the dapoglyphs in arm. So this is really interesting. Um, and now when I'm being referred patients who have heart failure um, and diabetes, um, I'm I'm already wanting to encourage the patient's diabetes team to think mm. very very seriously about converting the patient to this class of drug if they're not already on it. Um, because because these are these are a class of drugs now that we we're pretty certain offer offer real prognostic benefit. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and, um, and I suspect over the coming probably months, well, hopefully months, maybe year, um, organisations like uh, the National Institute for Healthcare and Clinical Excellence are, are going to be reviewing these medications to see whether we can actually um, prescribe them in people who who just have heart failure. Yeah, without diabetes. Yeah, it's fantastic news to uh, to hear that these things are coming down the track. Um, what else is pending, Steve, in terms of uh, perhaps ongoing trials in this area or other medications that we might see over the next few years? Yeah, so, um, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors are being trialed in the context of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Um, and that's the case both for dapoglyphosin, but also for empoglyphosin. Uh, there's the emperor reduced and emperor preserved trials that are ongoing. Okay. Um, uh, there's another SGLT2 inhibitor called canaglyphosin um, that is um, also out there and um, and is being looked at uh, both in the context of diabetes, also in patients with renal dysfunction. Um, and there may be some ca- canaglyphosin heart failure trials in the pipeline. Um, so there's quite a lot of um, quite a lot of um, you know interest in the clinical trials community um, in these drugs at the moment. And do we know how they work? I mean, you've elegantly described their effect in the kidney, but do we know how they may be influencing outcomes and symptoms of heart failure? So uh, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the um, the mechanism of action that we've um, that we've outlined already yeah. essentially just describes it. A diuretic, a diuretic yeah. um, but these drugs, whilst they have diuretic-like actions, I think most people believe that there is more going on than just a diuretic. Um, there are, I mean, there are lots of schools of thought. People think they may have uh, feedback mechanisms that reduce the level of sympathetic activation in heart failure. So that's that, that's one school of thought. Um, there's a school of thought that these uh, medications do something quite helpful at a cellular level in terms of energetics, uh, myocardial energetics. Um, so, so watch this space, but, but, but I think we are, we're learning a lot about what these drugs do and I suspect it will turn out to be, they'll turn out to be more than just uh, fancy diuretics. And are they going to be vastly expensive uh, in the UK and perhaps elsewhere? Do we have any idea about pricing in terms of so we know what they cost at the moment for diabetic patients, what they might cost in the future as more people prescribe them? Is that going to change? Yes, that's an excellent, it's an excellent question, actually. And it is a question that I was asked indirectly on, on Twitter, actually, probably about a month or two ago. Um, so, so we do know what they cost because you can, buy, you can prescribe them for diabetes at the moment. So I, I actually went to the BNF um, to try and answer this question when I was asked it. Um, you can prescribe someone 10 milligrams of uh, dapoglyphosin once daily at the moment in the UK for £1.31. That's what it costs for, for, for one patient for one day. Okay. Um, so that's actually cheaper than Secubitril Valsartan. Yeah. So if you prescribe someone the, the target dose of Secubitril Valsartan, 97.103 milligrams, 
uh, twice daily, then your 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 that day's worth of drugs is going to cost three pounds and twenty eight pence. So almost three times as much, basically. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it, it it's interesting and humbling to look at, at, at what we pay for the current standard of care in terms of medical therapy. So a day's worth of enalapril at top dose is uh, 12p. Okay. Uh, a day's worth of carvidolol at, uh, at top dose is 7 pence. And a day's worth of spironolactone is just 4 pence. So, so these drugs um, are, are very, very exciting. Um, they are, you know, are, are definitely going to become widely used. Um, they will improve symptoms. They will improve prognosis. Um, and they are cheap compared with the costs of heart failure hospital admissions, which you know in the UK run up to you know coming up to two billion pounds a year. I mean that's it's the the biggest bit of the money that we spend on heart failure each year in the UK is the cost of hospitalisation. So so compared with that, they are cheap, but they are more expensive than the drugs that we're currently prescribing. Um, and I think that will mean that they are going to be initiated um, in, I suspect, quite a careful way. Uh, I think specialists will, will end up being the, 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 the group of healthcare professionals that, that, that will need to initiate these drugs. In the same way, I guess, that Secubitril Valsartan is generally at the moment yeah, initiated absolutely. by specialists. Right? Absolutely. And I mean, we have a lot to learn about how to initiate these drugs. Um, I've been chatting quite a bit, actually, over the last couple of months to some of my Diabetology colleagues actually over at Addenbrooke's, yeah, um, and um, and trying to you know trying to learn about the sorts of diabetes or sugar related problems that, that that we can expect to encounter when we use these drugs. Um, you know, we need we need to understand what we're doing before we start yeah. doing it. Do, do they have an effect? You may not know the answer as yet, but do they have a significant effect on on blood sugar, increased hypos, that kind of thing, or in, so non, in non-diabetics? So that's a, I mean, there's a theoretical risk. Um, there is a risk in people with diabetes. My understanding of this, which is a little sketchy, if truth be told, is there's a risk of, uh, of normoglycemic DKA, which is you know potentially serious and something that that I would struggle to pick up. Um, okay. And you also need to be quite careful with respect to the risk of infection because, you know, the glycosuria is not a, a normal right. thing. Um, and, um, and there is the potential for, for urinary tract infections and, 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 and urinary sepsis. So, so I think as cardiologists, we need to we need to we need help <laughs> understand exactly what we're, what we're doing before yeah. we before we launch into this. Yeah. And just just to finish off on medications, you were talking there about. The sort of bedrock of ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, spironolactone, and I noticed again something you were talking about on social media was the way that Royal Papworth Hospital has been able to improve the outcomes of people with devices that have been placed by optimizing medical treatment and being really um, microscopically involved with the patients after the implant to make sure that they have you know, the correct optimal doses of these medications, not just low-level background doses. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Can you talk a little, yeah, I think you said you'd... you'd... So, I mean, it's a, a clinic that we set up now yeah. just over five years ago. We've seen more than a thousand patients since we've been running, um, and it's a, a, a clinic running in conjunction with uh, physiologists who who I think have an enormous amount to bring to the care of heart failure patients. And, and essentially what we've been doing is just trying to take a holistic look at patients who come for uh, follow-up of their CRT device, of their, of their cardiac synchronization therapy device, to, to make sure they're being managed as well as possible in, in every way. Right. Um, I mean, frequently you'll meet people who receive a CRT device 
um, who manifest, you know, reverse remodeling, mm. whose blood pressure improves. Um, and you might see that blood pressure as an opportunity to push up doses of ACE inhibitor or ARB. Or you might see someone who has a CRT device implanted um, and now um, has a slightly better heart rate as a result of you know atrial pacing in whom you can you know you can improve the dose of beta blocker or you might see someone who um, has a positive response to crt and better end organ perfusion their serum creatinine improves and they will tolerate a little more mra so um so there are always opportunities i think to try and improve these things um at the same time you know maybe patients diuretic requirement may go down mm. Um, or, or at the other end of the spectrum, I mean, there are patients who've now had CRT devices in for 10 or 15 years who are becoming you know, older, uh, frailer, more comorbid, um, in whom sometimes treatment goes the other way. Um, so, so we've looked you know, carefully at medical therapy, but we're also looking at sort of CRT delivery. Yes. Are, are people actually getting as much biventricular pacing as they should do? Yeah. Um, if not, why not? You right. know, what's the problem? Uh, have they gone into atrial fibrillation? Um, is their AV conduction slick? Should they have their node ablated? Um, is there ventricular ectopy? Is there anything that we can do with their medical therapy to try and get rid of that? Um, um, actually, we've had some enormous successes over the years um, in doing that. I and mean, there was someone I sent to go and see an electrophysiologist for uh, for ablation of a you know particularly troublesome unifocal uh, PBC, who at the same time is referring. We tinkered with all their medical therapy, and by the time they got to the electrophysiologist. PVCs are all gone. Really? Um, so, so it's it, yeah. you know, the, the the interplay between the device and the medical therapy can be quite quite profound at times. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the clinic's been a success, um, and, and and there's nothing magical about this. It's just doing sensible things in a sort of joined yeah. up way. Um, yeah. And again, I don't really see there's any reason why it has to be someone like me that does this personally. Right. I think right. probably the country has. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds, or maybe even thousands of specialist heart failure nurses that that could do exactly the same yeah. things to patients with devices. It's just yeah. trying to to bridge that gap. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it is a gap that does need bridging. Yeah, and let's finish off by talking about another of your interests, and that's cardiogenic shock. <laughs> Touching all the all the tricky areas of heart failure. Yeah, I'm sorry to do this. This was one of the questions that came up on social media when I said I was speaking to a a heart failure expert. Uh, who works in uh, in transplant and with devices? Um, Cardiogenic shock again is the is the source of a great deal of of confusion. Um, I mean, you you mentioned earlier about new definitions, and there is a there there is a new definition or a, a certainly a new uh, way of classifying cardiogenic shock that was um, that was published a little earlier on um, this year by the um, by the SCA SCAI. Um, and what's the SCAI? So the SCAI is the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention. It's a sort of US-based organization that actually spans a lot of other organizations. Um, okay. This this, this, uh, this classification system was was um, put together by a combination of heart failure cardiologists and interventional cardiologists and intensive care doctors and um, really trying to bring together a number of different fields. Um, and what was the definition that they... They, so they it wasn't really so much definition as a way of classifying shock. Okay. So I think the definition of shock um, is it's fairly apparent. Is, is, it? Is, yeah. is, is, is pretty unchanged. I mean, essentially, you need a combination of low blood pressure, which is very easy to recognize, and low cardiac output, which is very difficult to recognize. Yeah. Um, and, and I think 
a lot of the trouble with cardiogenic shock comes from the failure to estimate or, or measure cardiac output. Um, I mean, I often jokingly say to the trainees that you know low LVEF plus low blood pressure does not equal cardiogenic shock. Um, you know, there are, as you mm. say, hundreds of thousands of people out there with with a low left ventricular ejection fraction. And, and they can get any type of shock they please. Right. Um, <laughs> have to be cardiogenic shock. Um, but so it's measurement of cardiac output that's the that's the key thing. Yeah. Um, and um, and again, I'm lucky enough to work in a hospital with a fantastic intensive care unit um, and intensivists that are able to float pulmonary artery catheters and measure cardiac output precisely. So we can be really quite quite accurate in our hemodynamic you know confirmation of cardiogenic shock. Out there in the real world, PA catheters are not as widely available. Mm. Most people turn to echocardiography. And measuring cardiac output by echocardiography is, is possible, but it's tricky. Mm. Um, it's difficult. It's and it can be and it can be time consuming. So the SCAI hasn't really redefined redefined cardiogenic shock, but they've but they've classified it. Um, and they've tried to do so with an algorithm that is simple, easy to remember. So it's an A B C, D, E approach. Um, and they have tried to make it such that anyone can classify their patient with cardiogenic shock, irrespective of whether they've got fancy PA catheters and are all singing, all dancing ICU or not. Okay. Um, Interesting. So, I mean, to, to, to talk through it, uh, A, which is the lowest grade of cardiogenic shock, uh, are patients who, to be brutally honest, haven't got cardiogenic shock. So these are people who are at risk. So your your gentleman who's had big anterior myocardial infarction, he's at, at risk of cardiogenic shock. Yeah. Um, B are people who are beginning to manifest cardiogenic shock. So where you've got early signs of you know blood pressure trending down or early signs of hypoperfusion, people who may have cooled peripheries, people who may be becoming oliguric. Uh, people who may not be cerebrating normally, uh, people whose lactate levels may be, you know, may be starting to rise. So that's the sort of the beginnings of cardiogenic shock. So C, they define as classic cardiogenic shock, and that's really what you and I have just been talking about earlier. So people with low blood pressure, low output, people who are needing interventions to try and improve both of those things. And those may be inotropes or vasoconstrictors or intraortic balloon pumps and so forth to, to try and stabilize things. D is deteriorating. And that's where, despite those interventions, people are starting to get worse. Um, so that may be, you know, despite those interventions, um, end organ dysfunction, um, aneuria, the need for renal replacement therapy, needing ever escalating doses of inotropes to, you know, to hold to hold ground. Yeah. Um, so D is deteriorating and E is extremis. Um, and this is actually really useful. So extremis is patients who are either in cardiac arrest or patients who are requiring emergency mechanical circulatory support. And they're particularly talking about patients on VA ECMO. So if you are on VA ECMO, you are in a catastrophically bad place. You are in big, big trouble. Um, unless someone can bail you out of that quickly, then you're going to die. Mm. Um, and, um, and that's something that hasn't really been recognized in earlier classification systems for cardiogenic shock. Um, the, 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 the other big classification system out there is called the Intermax system. Um, and, and Intermax, one of the criticisms of it is it didn't really recognize that, that, that group of patients from 
VA ECMO and, and, and quite how bad their, their situation is. Okay. So, so people are starting to use this now. Yeah. Um, there are some, uh, there's been a couple of publications from the US retrospectively applying this classification system to some big shop registries. And it, and it seems to have a real world association with within hospital mortality. Um, so, so, so it may be something that's actually going to be useful to, uh, you know, doctors and nurses in day-to-day terms when they're trying to describe to a advanced heart failure centre or a mechanical circulatory support centre how bad their patient is and, yeah. and, and, and whether there's someone that needs to be, to, you know, to be shipped to a, a hospital where they can get you know, more in the way of invasive treatment. Yeah, very interesting. And how uh, in the UK are we managing cardiogenic shock at the moment? You, we, we talked previously about a hub and a spoke model. Yes. Is that is that the way that others are doing it in the world? Should we change that? Do you think? So I think I think we're managing it very variably. Is the is the short answer? Yeah. Um, there is um, work that I'm lucky enough to be involved in at the moment, um, trying to define really what um, what the management of cardiogenic shock should look like in the UK. What what sort of system um, should we aspire to? Uh, I mean, the UK has done fantastically well at reorganising care of complex conditions over the last 10 or 15 years. So so primary angioplasty mm-hmm. has been a wonderful example of how the whole country has got together and reorganised how it manages a, you know, a, a catastrophically dangerous condition. And the same is true now for stroke. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been big, big advances in how we manage stroke. So I think there is acceptance that the NHS is actually very good at doing coordinated, you know, cross-site, hub-spoke management of complex conditions. Um, and I think quite a few people in the UK now believe that, that cardiogenic shock may be another type of condition that should be managed in that way. Because if you present to, uh, say, if you come into Adam Brooks Hospital next door with acute, acute myocarditis um, and you are in cardiogenic shock, then I think there is a very, very good chance that you will get um, an echo diagnosis quickly, um, that the severity of your situation will be recognised quickly. And I would hope that you would be rapidly referred and transferred to Papworth. You would end up on ICU. Um, You might get an endomyocardial biopsy to define exactly what your pathology is. Um, And if you deteriorate, then you will be offered mechanical circulatory support. now that's not the case everywhere, is if it? If you yeah. present to uh, another a another hospital in yeah. a in a sort of um, a more, a remote, more re- remote part of the country, then then you may find yourself uh, having access to a very different set of treatments. Yeah, and and that's not equitable. Right. I, don't, I don't think that's right. Um, I think we should be aspiring to deliver the same treatments to people, irrespective of where they live. And, and, and which healthcare you know institution they, they present to. Yeah. Um, so um, so I, I hope that that's that that's where we're going. But I think it's going to take a while to get there because there are quite big uh, there are quite big resource um, implications associated with this. And and also, to be brutally honest, no one really knows about the scale of the problem. Mm. Um, I I don't know what the incidence of cardiogenic shock is in the UK. The true incidents, right? The, yeah. the patients you don't see exactly in, yeah. in the tertiary centres. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know what the incidence of advanced heart failure is in the in in, in the UK. Um, you know, like most things, I suspect this is a this is an iceberg. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, so it's going to be a big piece of work. This and there are lots of people involved. Um, you know, the intensive care society are very very interested in this. Um, uh, so the um, 
so the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. So there are there are lots of other people involved, but um, but it's uh, it's interesting, and, and and you're right. You know, the hub and spoke approach, I think, is probably going to be where we're, where we head up. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Steve, for your for your time and your expertise. And uh, we will put links to some of the things that we've discussed, papers that have been published uh, in the show notes so everybody can go and read those. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for joining me. You're all welcome. Thank you. Thank you.